0: The Word of God is powerful, amen? amen? Amen. Thank you so much. Some of our high school and college students have memorized Romans 8, and it just dawned on me when I was gone recently, you know, I need to have them recite that in the service, and we're going to do it more than just this once. In fact, I want to encourage you, the next time we do it, pick up your Bible and read along with them, and even you can read it along with them. This is, this is the Word of God And they didn't have it up on the screen back there. It was all memorized. So praise God for the privilege of actually uh, putting his word into our memories and being able to recall it and recite it and remind ourselves of amazing gospel truth. It's our privilege today to be in Romans 8 again. Uh, So please find Romans 8 in your Bibles. Romans 8 is so uh, significant. It is a, a pinnacle It's on the Mount Rushmore of Bible chapters. It's a golden summary of gospel truth and it should change our life. It should change us. So if you need a Bible, by the way, there's one in the seat back in front of you or someone will share with you. I also want to tell you it's really good to be back after being gone a couple weeks. I enjoyed some study and prayer time alone with the Lord for a few days and then some vacation with the family. We were up at Hume Lake up in the Sequoias and Kings Canyon, and uh, was able to do a lot of hanging out together, reading, praying. We did a lot of hiking, did a lot of fishing, did a lot of catching, which is always good when you're fishing. You want to catch. I really come back, as always, very thankful for this church, very thankful for a loving church family and an amazing leadership team. Think about our staff and our elders and our deacons and our ministry leaders, and I just really, really praise God for such an amazing church family and godly gifted team with which to serve. and I always miss grace when I'm not here. I was at Grace Rancho last Sunday, got to see what was going on there and excited to see Michael and Taylor and Eric and, and the rest of the team there and what's going on. Now that church is beginning to to, um, to get some excitement about the gospel and about the Word of God and about growing as a church and in that community, so it's good to be back with you today. Today we're going to be looking at two verses, Romans 8, 17, and 18. Really, we're going to look at part of one of the verses, okay? It's probably going to be several parts to to this, this idea of suffering and glory, suffering and glory. So this is part one today, and this week we're going to focus really all on present suffering. We're going to do that next week as well, and then we'll get to future glory at some point. But today, we're going to see that we need to accept suffering. As believers, we need to accept suffering. We don't need to hide from it. We don't need to try to uh, get out of it. We need to actually accept present suffering with Christ. And then as we move on, we're going to see that we need to anticipate future glory anticipate future glory so christians are to accept present suffering while we are anticipating future glory knowing something what we know is that suffering is the pathway to glory suffering is the pathway to glory for a christian so as you're following christ god is using suffering to make you more like christ so I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me. I'm going to read just these two verses. This is what the word says. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us now. We pray that you would have your way in our hearts, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. So the idea here is that suffering is the pathway to glory. Now, suffering is not our favorite topic. No one has suffering at the top of their list of favorite topics in life. Suffering is not our favorite topic, but it is our most pervasive experience. It is our most common experience. And we really need to let the Spirit of God use Romans 8, 17 and 18 to search our hearts, to shape our hearts regarding the link link between suffering and glory. And the reason why is it so that we would live lives that are yielded to Christ and his rule in our hearts and our lives. I've said this before, and I like to say it, that God in his word is the only perfect part of the worship service, only perfect part of the sermon, and really the God and his word are the only perfect parts of our lives. And we need to be able to allow, yield to God to oversee our hearts and make whatever changes necessary by His Spirit, through His Word. As the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in the lives of the people of God for the glory of God. And just in case it seems like every week we build up whatever passage we're preaching to be the most life-changing, you know, universe-altering truth, it's because it is. Wherever God has us in Scripture... Each week, it's it's the life-changing truth that God wants to use in your life to change you, to comfort you, to challenge you. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And God uses it to change us, to comfort us, and challenge us. We We are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So this is life or death. And the most crucial question that you'll be faced with this week is, will I or won't I bow before the holy God and his holy word? Will I or won't I obey God and his holy word? Will I or won't I allow the word of God to be brought to bear upon every millimeter of my life? And our answer really needs to be, speak, Lord, because your servant is listening. Cotton Mather put it this way. The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. I want to yield to God and his word. I want you to yield to God and his word. I want us as an assembly to yield to God and his word and to his authority. And what we see today in the Word of God is that suffering as a Christian leads to glory. Suffering as a Christian leads to glory. Now, we've already seen how God uses suffering. Go, go back to Romans chapter 5. And if, if you were with us at this point of our verse by verse study through Romans, what you'll notice is that I had mentioned back then that Romans 5 1 through 5 is like a preview of Romans 8. Romans 5, 1 through 5 is almost a a Romans 8 in a nutshell. It says, therefore, it starts therefore, so based on everything you've seen in chapters 1 through 4 about God's holiness and our sinfulness and salvation in Christ, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and he says, we, he's talking about the church, he's talking about believers, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, Romans 8 continues these ideas. In Romans 8, 1 begins, there is therefore. so There is therefore, based on all of Romans chapters 1 through 7, again, that told us of God's holiness, of God, of our sinfulness, of Christ's sacrifice, of, of salvation by his grace alone there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus and the key phrase there is that it's for those who are in christ jesus this is boldly declared headline news this is a display of god's grace this is the final verdict it's the king's word that's beyond dispute and it tells us that those who have been made right with god justified through faith in Christ his finished work on the cross will never be condemned by God so that if you know the gospel and you know that God is holy and we are sinful and that Jesus took our place on the cross that he substituted himself in our place and that he died and was buried and on the third day arose He conquered death, he conquered sin, and that everyone who puts their faith in Christ receives eternal life. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you believe that, you will never be condemned by God. Now, it's not you just believing what those words say, but that you have actually surrendered your life to God, that you have actually Relinquish your rights, you've relinquished your ideas and said, no, what God says matters, and I'm going to put myself under him. And what happens is now you're uncondemned, and what's true of the uncondemned is you go through Romans 8, you see these things, and the beautiful truths, you see that you can now obey God. You see that you've been freed from sin, you still sin, but you don't have to sin, and and you've been died for, and you experience life change by the Spirit of God. You set your mind on the Spirit, and the Spirit does what you can't. The Spirit changes your nature. The Spirit guarantees your eternity. The Spirit gives you power to say no to sin. The Spirit gives you power to kill sin. And the spirit assures you of salvation every believer needs assurance of salvation and every believer has assurance of salvation as the spirit of god testifies with our spirit that we are children of god he assures us and we find that we are debtors to god's grace we are in debt to god's grace octavius winslow said christian The only thing that makes you different from the vilest being that pollutes the earth or the darkest being that gnaws his chains in the depths of hell is the free grace of God. We are debtors to God's grace. We ask the question, people ask it all the time, how do I know if I'm really a Christian? How do I know if I'm really a believer? How do I know... I, I'm really going to heaven. And you can answer it with 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Do you have Jesus in your life? Right? Are you trusting his finished work on the cross? You can answer it with Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. Is God your father? Are you his son or daughter? Are you controlled by God? Literally, are you obedient? to Christ in his word? Are you crying out to God? Literally, are you being dependent upon him on a daily basis? Are you confident in Christ? Is the spirit assuring you of your son or daughterhood? And here's what you find as you go through Romans. You find it's all about Bringing about something that was said at the very beginning of Romans and is said at the very end of Romans. It's the bookends of Romans. I've mentioned this before. I might be the only one that remembers it. But if you use bookends, if, if people even use bookends anymore, right? But when you, when you see it, uh, an, antique, an antique set of bookends, what, what you see is they're matching, okay? Like two horse heads or whatever. And they're just mirror images, okay? So I want you to go to Romans 1.5. Romans 1.5, and here at the very beginning of Romans, Paul's introducing, describing himself, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, the Son of God, who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, To bring about, here's the first bookend, the obedience of faith. Okay, that's the first bookend of Romans. The obedience of faith. So he's writing to bring about the obedience of faith. Now go all the way to the end of Romans, chapter 16. We'll look at verse 26. Now this is the doxology, like this burst of praise, the very end of Romans, where he says, Now to him... Who was able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. But now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations. You notice that said that in in, in chapter 1 too. The obedience of Christ to all the nations. That the, the people would hear the gospel. People would respond in faith and they would be obedient. Here it says to bring about. Here it is right here. According to the command of the eternal God. This is what God wants. To bring about, look at the end of verse 26. To bring about the obedience of faith. There's your other bookend in Romans. It's all about bringing about the obedience of faith. Where, where you would live humbly, uh, dependently, obediently to Christ. And, and then what happens, and you see it right here in, in Romans 8:17. What happens when you do that? What do you get for your humble, dependent, obedient faith in Christ? You get suffering for Christ. Or more specifically, as verse 17 says, you suffer with Christ. You suffer with Christ. So God meets us right where we live at the intersection of grief and glory. And the one way one way you can know if you're really a Christian is if you are suffering for your faith in Christ. I mentioned before that in, in verse 17 here, Paul is showing his hand for the rest of the chapter. It's all about believers suffering in Christ through this life and anticipating future glory that will be revealed. So verse 17 says: if you're children, then you're heirs, you have an inheritance. You're heirs of God, you share in all the joys and the riches of sonhood or daughterhood and, and your joint heirs your fellow heirs with jesus and here's the phrase we're going to look at today that we'll, we'll break down today in verse 17 provided we suffer with him provided we suffer with him next time we'll look at the sufferings of this present time and then we'll move on to glorification and we'll look on to the glory that will be revealed but the first thing is this phrase, provided we suffer with him. We're going to spend all of our time on that phrase today. Now the thing that stands out the most to me, right at the beginning, when I see that phrase, provided we suffer with him, is we. We. Now Paul has done it in chapter 5, and now he's coming back to it in chapter 8. Paul is speaking very personally and very collectively. And he's using the pronoun we. It's very significant. Back in verse four of chapter eight, Paul began including himself in what he was saying, and he said us. Verse 12, he started saying we again, and now we have to think about this. Who is we? It's very significant. We is the church adopted by christ so the adoption as sons the adoption as sons and daughters that's the church adopted by christ now it's very good and very appropriate for us to apply things to ourselves individually we have to you come to the word of god you can't say well it's about them okay it's it's for you to apply individually into your own heart and life but it is not good to forget that what was written in the New Testament was written to collective groups of committed believers. so Paul was writing to to the Roman Christians. He hadn't even met them yet. He had heard about them. But he was writing to a group of believers in a location that were known to be a part of a local church. So this needs to be applied to the community of faith and, of course, to your individual life, but not separate from the community of faith. You can't separate that out. It was written to churches and more specifically to an adopted church that's committed together to number one, accept present suffering with Christ and number two, anticipate future glory. He's talking about the church of Jesus Christ, the true church, all true believers. And I think it's gonna be very helpful for us to remind ourselves Who we are. And this is going to help us to understand what it means to suffer with Christ. So let's remind ourselves for a few moments here who we are. Now, at the beginning of Romans chapter 1, verse 7, here's Paul and here's who he's writing to. Those loved by God. You can check it. Those loved by God and called to be saints. So, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Now, he's referring to all the the members of the worldwide body of Christ, but he's, he's referring to a group that is residing in a location and belong to a local church. So, just as it is biblically expected that a Christian is going to suffer, it's also biblically expected that a Christian will be part of a local church, a community by the Spirit in Christ. You see this in Acts. You see this in Acts chapter 2, how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and prayer. But you notice they did it, and they were an identified group of people that continued to grow and grow and grow, and even spread out to other cities. But think with me for a moment, about what it means to be we and what it means to be a church there are a lot of groups of people that are gathering that aren't a church but they call themselves a church and so you got to test it biblically not just by the name on the sign you've got to realize you've got capital letter c and lowercase c when it comes to church so the capital letter C, church, is the worldwide body of Christ, all who know Christ. The lowercase c, church, that, those, are, those are local assemblies of believers, but they're marked by something. So, not just because you put it on a sign, but because you actually are engaged with certain things. And I, I'm going to give you six things. We're going to go quick here. But you might want to write them down. What is a church? Paul is saying we, provided we suffer with him. He's writing to a church. And here's what a church is. Number one, a regular gathering of believers. So the adopted children of God in a location gathering together. Who've been born again, who are clinging to Christ. a, A regular gathering of called out ones. Indwelt by the Spirit of God. They have faith in the finished work of Christ. They are living repentantly And obediently and even joyfully as a community of faith. Now, I want to always be committed to the local church. I love coming to Grace Church of Orange because it's my church. My local church, I'm a part of this church. I'm I'm known here, I know people. That's why I love coming home from a trip. I want to be with you. And it's a privilege to do that with you. 12 years and counting, praise God. But I can't help desiring, worshiping with the people of God and, and being with his people in the location that God has put me. I don't come to meet strangers every week. There's always new people you meet, but there's people you know, and we see each other, we know each other, you've been through life together. It's a regular gathering of believers, adopted children of God. That's what a church is, number one, that's what a church is. Number two, that group devotes itself to the Word of God. They devote themselves to the Word of God, the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. You think about it. When you come into the worldwide body of Christ as a believer, you're basically saying, my thoughts are not paramount anymore. My thoughts are not in first place anymore. I'm going to think God's thoughts after him. I'm going to know the word of God and be shaped by the word of God and be under the word of God. The word of God is sacred. In fact, I came up with a little acrostic for sacred and I can't remember the last letter, but the first is sufficient. The second is authoritative. The third is clear. The fourth is reliable, the fifth is essential, and I can't remember what the D stood for. But I think authoritative, uh, sufficient authoritative, clear, reliable, and essential is, is, um, is pretty heavy. It's pretty important. First Peter 1 tells us, we're born again through the living and abiding word of God. James 1 says, we were brought forth by the word of truth. We were born again. Psalm 19, it's all about how sufficient and, and great the word of God is. Psalm 29 talks about the word of God being the voice of the Lord. Psalm 119 talks about how supreme the word of God is. And, and 2 Timothy 4.2 tells us, preach that word. Preach it. We're devoted ourselves to the word of God. It's so a g- gathering of believers Regularly devoting themselves to the Word of God, and number three, a group that administers and celebrates the ordinances. There are two: baptism and the Lord's Supper. We get to do the Lord's table today. A couple weeks ago, we had a baptism at the beach. Baptism is Jesus' method of identifying His people publicly. It's basically, you're welcome to the family moment as a new believer. And communion, which we do over and over again, is the Lord's Supper, is remembering Jesus in an ongoing practice where we're remembering the gospel and the finished work of Christ and and that we're one in Christ. You know, we don't do communion alone. We do it with a group of people. We have to celebrate that in a few minutes. We're we're in the room together with fellow believers, many of whom we know very well. So in baptism, you you become one of many. And and at communion, the many become one. We look around and say, wow, look at who God is saving. Look who Jesus saved. So a group of believers devoting themselves to the word of God, administering and celebrating the ordinances. And number four, practicing church discipline. I call it church good stuff because it's loving. It's kind. Jesus gave us this this beautiful way to reconcile and restore and renew relationships when things go wrong. And it's where you make wrong things right based on the shed blood of Christ. It's very simple. It says if your brother sins against you, go in private. Have a one-on-one and, and talk about it. And then if they listen, you, you're all good. You're together. You're unified. You're reconciled. What happens is a lot of people, they go gossip about it and never have the one-on-one. You do the one-on-one, and usually it's settled, and no one but you, God, and the person ever needs to know about it. If they don't listen, you take one or two others to confirm what's going on, and you hope that settles it. But then if they don't listen, you take it to the church. You should never have to get to that point, not when there are humble Christians doing what God wants. So a group of Christians that are committed to the word of God and celebrating the ordinances and practicing biblical church discipline, not heavy-handed, not mean, not unkind, but loving so much that you want to make sure all your relationships are right and you want to have a clear conscience before God and others. And number five, a group that's committed to one another in common life and mission. Ephesians 5.21, that you would be willingly submitting to members of the local church submit to one another in the fear of christ and number six a group that is led by and following humble godly qualified servant leaders servant shepherds there's a willingness to submit to leadership hebrews thirteen seventeen. that's what a church is a group of, of adopted believers, uh, pe- those whom God has adopted into his family, and they, they link together in a local assembly, and they devote themselves to the word, and they pray together, and they, they fellowship, and they outreach. They, they do the Lord's Table and Baptism, their biblical church discipline, and they're committed to each other, and they're committed to following godly leadership. So The first thing here, I think it really opens up this idea of, of 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 suffering with Christ it's not solo it is so easy for us to think well it's just my suffering what about if one member suffers all the members suffer so first thing provided we the worldwide body of Christ assembled in local churches the second part here is provided we suffer with him Suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So suffering with Christ, present suffering. We have the inheritance. It's ours by union with Christ, the true seed of Abraham. He gained the inheritance for us, and we suffer with him. We are in the family and suffering, and suffering is the pathway to glory. If you do not suffer, you're not a believer If you do not suffer with Christ, you're not a believer. I think a lot of times we miscategorize suffering. There's basic human suffering, and then there's suffering for being a believer. And I think sometimes we just don't recognize it where it exists. You think about it. The whole creation groans. The whole creation groans. We are saying, wretched, wretched person I am. I'm in a sinful body, and I'm suffering due to sin. And and we suffer through this life, and we have joy and sorrow. Life is not just pain and misery all the time, but it can be characterized by suffering. In fact, God characterizes it by suffering, provided we suffer with him that we may also be glorified. But we suffer through this life in joy and sorrow. We live in a sin-tainted world, aware of sin. And you know who feels it the most sharp? Believers. Believers feel it the most sharp. We feel it. We know it. When I was not a believer, I didn't, didn't know all about that. I wasn't that... Pained. I knew that I had uh, suffering and I had issues like everybody else. But believers feel it most sharply. It's like Paul saying, I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of his resurrection. We want to stop at that moment. But it says, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. You never go on a vacation from sin and suffering. You're never on a break. You suffer as a believer, as a sin-aware, regenerate, redeemed person in a sin-ravaged body longing for heaven. There's regular human suffering. We all know. I mean, where do you start, right? Where do you start? There is a lot. And then there's suffering with Christ. The regular human suffering just tells you, you know, you're going to suffer life as a human you're gonna suffer in life. You're gonna have the searing pain of loss. You're going to have heartache. You're gonna have unmet expectations. You're gonna have broken hopes, dashed dreams, lost opportunities, stolen treasures. You're gonna have failures and mishaps and and missteps. You're going to get this as a human. You're gonna have crash and burns you're going to have relational regrets. That marriage that you thought would be more joyful. That parenting that you thought would be more pleasurable. The singleness you thought would bring you freedom and fulfillment. The friendship you think you need. The person you want out of your life. The career you thought would be more successful and fulfilling. And it's hard, isn't it? to make sense of Of senseless tragedies and just regular human suffering? Sometimes we begin to wonder, why do bad things happen to good people, right? Well, the honest answer is they do not. Bad things do not happen to good people. They happen to bad, sinful, depraved people. They happen to all people. R.C. Sproul Jr. said, why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened once and he volunteered. There's a country singer, Luke Bryan, he sings a song, I Believe Most People Are Good. Wrong. I mean, it's a catchy tune and all that, but only God is good. Most people are good, though, at trying to uh, bury their troubles. Most people are good at trying to avoid pain. Most people are good at medicating their suffering away. Most people are good at forgetting God in daily life. What did God say? My people have forgotten me days without number. Most people are good at hurting people. Most people are good at sinning. Most people are good at selfishness. Most people are good at crying out to God only when they feel the need and forgetting him the rest of the time. We might look good on the outside, but but the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one does good. Bad happened to the only one that was good. Jesus took our sins and died in our place to redeem us. God made bad work for good. I mean, where do you start when you think of human suffering? God answers it in the cross. And then there's suffering for God. There's specific suffering for God. So many examples in the Bible that you can can think of. I mean, we'll start with Moses for a moment. Moses, he suffered as as he thought about how grieved he was over the sin of his people. I mean, he got angry. He was betrayed as a leader. He was ready to quit. He came down from mountaintop times with God. He had a commandment in hand and he caught the Israelites in complete sin chaos. golden calf and everything, and he cries out desperately to God on their behalf. Exodus 32, 32. He says, please forgive their sin. And he's suffering so much, he says, but if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. That's how much he was suffering. David, you know, King David, he suffered trouble. He suffered deep despair. I mean, read the Psalms. He's singing the blues. And he writes of his anguish, he writes of his loneliness, he writes of his grief, he writes of his fear, he writes of his sin and his guilt. Here was a man who, who went through the suffering of, of the loss of his sons. And he has honesty. You've got to love the Psalms for their honesty. Psalm 38, 4, he says, my guilt has overwhelmed me. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. In Psalm 42, 11, he's talking to his soul, and he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? And Then he talks to his soul, speaking hope. He says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. He's counseling himself. He says, my Savior and my God. Take Elijah, the prophet, discouraged, weary afraid he had this big victory over the prophets of Baal next thing you know he's running for his life from Jezebel's threats he's out in the desert he sits down he's defeated and he prays here's what he says I have had enough Lord take my life I am not better than my ancestors take Jonah a prophet who suffered for his sin he is disobedient to God's call in his life God calls Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites of coming judgment. He runs as far away as he can. After a storm at sea, after being swallowed by a giant fish, after being saved, after being getting a second chance, what does Jonah do? He obeys. And he preaches the message God wanted him to give to the Ninevites, and they repent. A good thing happens, and God's mercy goes out on all who turn to him. It's a great moment. But instead of rejoicing, Jonah gets angry at God. He says in Jonah 4.3, because people repented, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to live, excuse me, to die than to live. Take my life, just kill me now. And God He's so patient, he's so compassionate with us, and he, he reaches out to Jonah again, and he has great compassion on him, and, and Jonah responds like this in Jonah 4.9, I'm angry enough to die. Well, that's irrational, by the way. If you get irrational this week, you're in good company, okay? We're all in the same boat, right? How about Jeremiah the prophet? He's wrestling with um, loneliness, he, he's suffering, he's feeling defeat, he's feeling insecure, and he's the weeping prophet, and he suffers from this constant rejection from the people that he was called to speak to and to love and, he, and to reach out to, and he lived alone, and he ministered alone, and he was poor, and he was ridiculed, and he's rejected. And he, he wrestles with deep despair. He suffers a sense of failure. He says in Jeremiah 20, Cursed be the day I was born. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow, to the end of my days in shame. And maybe at the pinnacle of, of suffering for God, you've got Job, right? You've got Job, suffers great loss, devastation, physical illness. And this righteous man of God lost literally everything. He suffers so much. And his own wife says to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job stays faithful to God. He struggles deeply though. He's in the trenches of pain. And he says, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only turmoil. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I'm gonna be giving free rein to my complaint. I'm gonna speak out in the bitterness of my soul. He says, terrors overwhelm me. My life ebbs away. And then he says, days of suffering grip me. Days of suffering grip me. Maybe that's you. Then there's suffering as a Christian. Do you notice verse 17 says, provided that we suffer with him? We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Christ. It it tells us in the New Testament, to you it has been granted to suffer for Christ's name. Acts 5.41 says, they rejoiced because they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are you when people cast insults at you and hurl all kinds of abuse at you for my name's sake. You think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, suffering. He was suffering personally, but he was suffering for Christ and for his faith in Christ, and it was a corporate suffering because the, the church knew he was going through it, but it was leading to future glory. All Christians suffer. all Christians will suffer. Praise God that Jesus suffered once for all, the just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. How does the body of Christ suffer together with Christ? You look at the one another's. Bear one another's burdens. That's how you fulfill the law of Christ. Comfort each other, pray for each other. How many times do you real, read things like, if one member suffers, all the members suffer? Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Second Corinthians 1.5, as we, plural, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. How do you suffer with Christ? You suffer with Christ as you care for other people. And as you kill sin, and as you serve, and as you receive unfair treatment, and as you absorb pain, and as you endure insults. There are some among us who have suffered so much, and only God knows the depths. You've suffered greatly. You've suffered continually, sometimes publicly, oftentimes privately and silently Sometimes supported, sometimes unsupported, but you have regular suffering just getting through this tough life, not to mention added suffering for your faith in Christ. And you look around and you see everything broken in the world. You can remodel, but it's going to deteriorate. We're in bondage to decay, but there is good news in the middle of the crisis. There is good news in the midst of the mess. God did not just abandon the situation. Well, that's hopeless. I'll just go on to do something else. No, he didn't abandon the situation or give up on it. The answer to brokenness was to redeem it. The Father sent the Son to bear the dreadful curse of our sin in our place and rise from the dead. God is bringing about a new creation. He's having you suffer so you put your trust in him. Teach you the word of God. Wean you from idols. Get you to trust him. What do we do so often? We dive deeper into our own resources. We trust our own ideas and worldly wisdom and horses and chariots and and our own heart. It is very easy, is it not, to think, well, I don't know if this is all worth it. And this is for you today, provided we suffer with him. With him. He's with you. He holds you. He's got today, tomorrow, and the future in his hands. Any pain you go through, he's felt it too. You give your life to Christ. You're not going to get everything you want, but you will get everything you need. He is the father of the fatherless. He is the the hope of the hopeless. He is the, the rest of the restless. He is the comfort of the comfortless. The security of the insecure. He is the strength of the weak. And suffering for Christ leads To glory, it's one of the ways God gives you assurance that you're on your way to heaven. God's plan in your life, if you're a believer, is suffering, because God's goal in your life is glorious. That's the first thing. That's pretty much what we're going to look at today. Just that's it. Provided we, the worldwide body of Christ assembled in local churches, suffer with Him. Suffering is inevitable. Jesus is the only comfort. Sin is the evil disease. Jesus is the only cure. The ultimate answer to human suffering is the suffering of Christ on the cross. Suffering is an alien invasion into God's good creation resulting from human sin and rebellion and God uses it for his glory. He answers it in the cross and empty tomb of Christ. There is no other hope but the hope of Of God fixed in the cross of Christ. We preach Christ crucified. We know no other savior. We have no other hope. Everything rests on Christ. Our savior, our Lord who willingly paid the entire price on our behalf. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He suffered once for all the just for the unjust. So he might bring us to God. He went through the worst suffering anyone ever could. He, the perfect Son of God, very God of very God, took upon himself the form of a bondservant. And being found in appearance as a, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The worst kind of death, the most humiliating, the best took the worst for us in our place. Next time we meet, we'll talk about the sufferings of this present time even more. What does that mean? But I think most of us are going to say this: Do I have to? And the answer is yes. Some of us ask, what if it's not happening? And I think God would say, look closer. Look closer. God knows your heart. Look closer. Look closer at your own heart. Look closer to Christ. Because I hope you see that today, suffering for Christ is the pathway to glory. Through many tribulations, we shall enter the kingdom of God. For you, as a believer the suffering you encounter, human suffering and suffering for Christ is a gracious gift from God. It is a constant reminder to you of gospel truth, of eternal things. And Lord, we thank you that our suffering is, is really momentary. This momentary light affliction producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We accept it as a gracious gift from you. We grieve through it. We, we, we're pain. We're here in pain, we're, but we know that Jesus took hell for us. And thank you, Lord, that, that Jesus took hell for us so that we could be in heaven someday with you. Thank you, Lord, that because of the suffering of death, Christ was crowned with glory and honor. We thank you and we praise you. And we thank you that you're with us always. There's never a moment that you are not caring, and that you are not carrying us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.